Hello and welcome again to the Gems of History podcast. I am your co-host Evan Roosh and joined with me as always, we have the everlasting, that's the <laughs> first thing that came to my mind, we have the man with the incredible flow, we have Jacob Shop. That's right, it's certified goblin Jacob Shop. Certified goblin. Yeah, I went to the medieval torture museum and I stood on the witch scale and sure. I, I registered just underneath witch right at the top of goblin so Did, certified goblin do you have your certificate with you for I our do, studio i don't didn't get it printed off in time that's it probably would have cost like another 20 bucks I, to get your certificate honestly yes yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh you can just say no i actually just went to the two-year option <laughs> you just got my associate goblin degree all i did was stand on a scale but they charged me fifty thousand dollars for tuition <laughs> it was weird oh my god <laughs> only class they offered that sounds like <laughs> That sounds like something a Disney adult would do. Oh, yeah. Just, no, it was, it was really a really great deal. I paid 20000 I lost my kid's college uh, tuition, but I got to wear the Fantasia hat that Mickey Mouse does. <laughs> I got to wave the wand, too. Nothing right. happened, though. Right. Yeah, it's all pre-recorded orchestra, so it's not like I was conducting it, or anything. It was but. weird. They made me sign the check. And then when I waved the wand, they just took it. And then yeah. that was it. In the fine print, it said only good for two seconds. Yep. <laughs> exactly one wave. But we got some really exciting stuff to uh, talk to you guys about today. Uh, we have an extremely interesting character uh, that we want to talk about, uh, Attila Hun. But before we dive into that, we got to talk about some crazy things that we've seen on the internet today. So, Oh, yeah. If you're not familiar with the story... Uh, it was a recent post on Reddit that uh, we just, Jacob and I, happened upon before diving into the podcast. You're giving me a lot of credit here because you, I literally had no knowledge of this before like five minutes ago. The thing is, though, once I told my tunnel story, you were like, oh, yeah, I know someone that also has a tunnel, like is up to oh, tunnel related Yeah, yeah we have tunnel related stories. Let's say that. Yeah, so tunnels and the digging of tunnels are just back in the streets, so... Somehow, this post uh, again on Reddit, posted by a user known as Specialist AD four five six one. The title of it is "How can I get my boyfriend to stop digging his tunnel?" Hey man, if that's if that's a problem you have, that's not the worst problem to have. I mean, he's not going out. You know where he is, right, unless he's can't. building this tunnel to cheat There's on you a, well, with a maybe with a goblin. <laughs> what type of mole woman is he looking for out in the streets? He's just like if you build a tunnel, then I'll have sex with you. <laughs> it's actually just the underminer from Incredibles. <laughs> he's hooking up with the underminer. <laughs> But uh, the Reddit post goes on to say, So, I know this is a weird question, but my boyfriend likes to spend a lot of his free time digging a tunnel on some property that he inherited. I love that use of inherited property so much. (laughs) Batman donated it to raise orphan children when Batman died. This guy decided to dig a tunnel. He saw that his family member died and left him this property, and he just like rubbed his hands together. He's like, boy, do I have the perfect use for this. Some... (laughs) Some people just see potential cash value. He says just 
potential digging value. Potential absolutely. tunnel value. His first question to the lawyer after he inherited inherited it was, uh, so what kind of soil are we dealing? Is there a How lot acidic? of power lines under, underground there? Cause... What's, the, what's the number for diggers hotline? <laughs> I haven't seen the full extent of the tunnel, but last I saw it was remarkably deep under the surface. He has spent roughly a year on it. The front of the thing is deep, wide, well put together. At the front, which is the only part that I've seen, <laughs> she's only seen the first part of the tunnel. Yeah, you can that only imagine how much further it goes. Right. He's got cement beams, electric lights, chairs, and a small table. Cement beams. Full electric lights as well. And just a little setup. Maybe it's just building a Did, huge man cave. Honestly, if I had a friend that just had a tunnel that he like retrofitted as like a man cave, I'd go over there all the time. Maybe this is the, you know how the Denver airport is just the biggest conspiracy for all those underground <laughs> tunnels? It was just a couple of boys just <laughs> digging some tunnels. And guys, like, Wait, we just could guys probably, being dudes. Right? <laughs> just guys being dudes digging holes. Uh, she goes on to say, and I'll try to wrap this up quickly. Uh, my biggest concern is his safety. I'm really worried that he's going to dig too deep and it'll collapse on him. I've tried voicing this concern to him, but he just laughs it off and assures me that he'll be fine. Aside from safety concerns, there's also the fact that he doesn't really have a social life because <laughs> of this thing. Really? I'm pretty much the only person he talks to outside of his job. He doesn't go out and do... He doesn't go out and do... Okay, he doesn't go out and do anything anymore. Okay, I feel like if he's already had the wherewithal to put up cement columns and yeah. retrofit it with electricity, right. I think he knows kind of what he's doing. I don't think he's going to have any trouble. He's a very handy man, that's for sure. Honestly. But at this point, she should just realize that he's in this for the long haul. Oh, yeah. He's a digging boy. And now you may be thinking maybe he's going crazy, but this man still comes home. He does, however, barely spends any time with his girlfriend. And he know she knows that he isn't doing anything but digging that damn hole in the ground. And she goes on to just just wrap this up that she doesn't really know how to convince him to stop because he's really happy when he comes back from digging. So he's just coming back like with a whistle like Hey, some people deal with COVID in different ways. You know? Right. This guy was like, I if I can't be in society that I'm going to get further away. Right. And then she, her last sentence on this, obviously I don't think he's insane, but I hadn't considered the mental health aspect of this and I just don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I honestly think this guy, instead of going to therapy, was like, no, we're going to dig a tunnel. <laughs> hey, tunnel digging man. If you're listening to this, please come give on us the an show. Interview. Come yes. on the show because we want to talk to you about this this tunnel project. We also want to do a podcast from the tunnel, which I, would be amazing. I would do anything. Well, that's a little bit. That of, is a stretch. Uh, that's a little bit of me would just you being do, dramatic. Okay, would you do more for this or a Klondike bar? That is the question. You know, I probably do more to get in this man's ew <laughs> to get in this ew. man's hole <laughs> to get in this man's tunnel. Yeah. I almost just said I would do anything to get in this man's tunnel. Let's weave it back a little bit. <laughs> Let's wheel it back. But no, this made me think of there's a thread on Reddit. I There's one subreddit I follow called Ask Reddit. And it's just you can literally ask anything and people will respond. There's like three million people or whatever in it. Mm -hmm. So there's always a ton of responses. There's one that was like, what's something that you could 
anonymously say on here, but you could never like tell someone that you did personally. Right. And some dude on there was like, well, I sold this property that I had like three years ago, but I've still been living in the underground tunnel bunker that I built on the property. And the people don't know that I lived there. <laughs> so oh. he just lives on like the property that he used to own right but doesn't pay to live there and just stays in this underground bunker that he built which is like well hidden in the back it's so <laughs> that is the creepiest oh it's 100 percent. but it's like also free real estate oh, i mean true i mean technically do the current landowners own anything below the surface or is it just i don't know but i feel like if he comes out and they see him they're going to shoot him so i i'd probably do the same whoever he is i hope he's doing okay out there all right hopefully he has enough provisions that is so wacky that wow that's crazy yeah. reddit reddit is a crazy place it's a fun place it really is but that's not what we're here to talk about nope. today that is just how we started the episode though. yeah we just thought it was so funny that we needed to share six minutes of tunnel talk Ooh, that's a good segment. Tunnel talk with the boys. Tunnel talk with the boys. Now Absolutely. a complete non sequitur to our main topic for today. What an amazing transition and lead-in to what we're going to talk about. Attila the Hun. Yes, Attila the Hun. So this man, uh, what else, what can you really say about him? He was... By the way, this might be a two-parter. We haven't decided yet. We'll see how long this goes. Depends on how many more tunnels we Yeah, we just had about. almost 10 minutes of tunnel talk, so this might be a two-parter. <laughs> right, right, right. But Attila the Hun, he is such a mysterious man in history. And the Huns, as a people, are a very mysterious uh, part of history. But Attila, despite his origins and his people's origins being a little little cloudy, I mean, there's some guesses on to what they were, where they came from. They had a, an incredible impact on history, not only Roman history, but also Persian history, like they invaded lands from the Middle East to the Roman empires, Eastern and Western Roman empires at this, po at this point, as well as Germany and France. And their empire, until the Huns' empire at its peak, spanned from roughly midway through Russia, if I'm not mistaken, up unto Germany. But we just don't really talk about the Huns and Attila Hun that much. It's crazy, too, because they built that big of an empire in just over 100 years, pretty much. Yeah. Like, they were not around, at least like not recorded being around that long, just because there were, they didn't write anything. The Huns had no written mm -mm. like language or anything really to use to write. They had language, obviously, but they just didn't write anything down. So all of the stuff that we know about the Huns pretty much comes from the Romans because the right. Roman historians wrote about them when they finally encountered them. But yeah, it's insane how short, like they could have been around for more time in the Asian step, like before they came to Europe, right? which I'm sure they were, but mm -hmm. just nobody really talks about them. And it's so except for Mulan, I guess. Yeah, movie, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so like the fact that they did so much in such a short amount of time, it, Pretty much is single-handed credit, not single-handed credit to Attila the Hun, but yeah. almost single-handed credit to Attila. Oh, absolutely. He was by far the most popular leader, I guess you can't say, of this people, uh, most well-known. But just the overarching theme of not knowing that much about the Huns. Um, and let me back up, because I always forget about my sources every single time <laughs> yeah. I do an episode. So my sources were history.com. 
biography.com, study.com, worldhistory.org, whoa, whoa, studious. And then finally, a YouTube channel known as Kings and Generals. Dude, that channel's awesome. I, I like that, it a lot. Yeah. I used that for the American Mafia episodes because they did like a little series on it. So, oh, nice. Yeah, that, that, that's awesome. Shout out them. I also use worldhistory.org. And then uh, there's this paper on the Goths that I use because we're going to get a little bit into like Rome leading up to the Huns, kind of like how it was set up pretty much. Mm-hmm. Just on a platter for Attila to come take. Right. But yeah, we'll get into that as we go. But uh, back to the point, uh, the historian Peter Heather actually wrote... That was what the paper I used was. Hot dog. Look at us go. We, we coordinate even when we don't coordinate. <laughs> <laughs> which is which lets us not having an episode last week. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> Man, sometimes we're hot, sometimes we're not. But he writes, and I quote... Our ignorance of the Huns is astounding. It is not even clear what language they spoke. Most of the linguistic evidence we have comes in the form of personal names, Hunnic rulers and their henchmen, from the time of Attila. But by then, Germanic had become the lingua franca of the Hunnic Empire, and many of the recorded names are either certainly or probably Germanic. Excuse me, Germanic, Iranian, Turkish, or Finn-Ugrian. And all these different languages influenced uh, the naming of these different Hun leaders. So kind of what I'm getting from that quote is Attila may not have even been his real name from the Huns in a way. Yeah. Like it was influenced by these other tribes, these other languages. Well, a big thing with like a lot of these groups, the Goths, the... the, uh the Huns and then like the Vandals and stuff. A lot of these groups were just conglomerates of a bunch of smaller groups that just kind of formed together to mm-hmm. become one big group, especially in, in the Huns case, because they just absorb everyone that they would come in contact with, that they would kind of run through the village of, Yeah, they would just kind of absorb into their group. So you don't know if they had like, they may have had a bunch of, Asian people, they might mm-hmm. have had more like Europe, like white European settlers in there too. Mm-hmm. So it was probably a big mix of different racial backgrounds, everything. So were the Huns actually just the most inclusive empire of all time? They may, I mean, if you that was half said and joking, but like, if you, kind of, yeah. If you consider inclusive just coming and destroying your village and then making you part of the group, then yes. Inclusion by force. Yes, that is one way to do it. Otherwise known as conquest, I see. <laughs> Otherwise known in some circles as raping and pillaging. Yes. It's, it's uh, yeah, those are the two key themes. Yes, there's, there's a lot of warranted speculation for why Attila was considered one of the most evil men ever. Oh, yeah. But... At the same time, dude is pretty smart, so... Yes, yes. Gotta give him a little credit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Peter Heather goes on, uh, The direct evidence we have for the motivations and forms of Hunnic migration is also equally limited. According to the ancient writer Amianus, there was nothing to explain the origin and seedbed of all evils. The people of the Huns who dwell beyond the Sea of Azov near the frozen ocean, and are quite abnormally savage. So that was the writer, Emi, I 
I think hate, it, I think I it's names. I think it's Amianus Marcellinus. Amianus, see, you just say it so smoothly. It's Latin, so it's got to have like some flair. Ah, but then it's also like your lang- language. This language is dead for a reason. So. <laughs> right. Just so that two one dude on a podcast wouldn't stumble <laughs> over it. I was listening to a Dan Carlin episode, and he was trying to read Latin, and uh-huh. someone I, he said like Latin's about how good you can mispronounce it or something like that right so i guess we just got to try our best (laughs) yeah but uh to the writer's credit the ancient historical writer he basically just described them at the time as the origin and seedbed of all evils and abnormally savage so the huns are extremely feared people yeah and for good reason. They yeah. kind of just came through and destroyed, so... Oh, yeah, they loved gold. <laughs> they they literally, like, sacked a city so hard <laughs> that not only was it completely destroyed, yep. but historians can't even figure out where it was. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's pretty bad. Yeah, they literally just... Man, now you, it's not even leveled a city. It's it's just gone. Wiped, literally wiped off the face of the earth. Yes. Like, all those people... Gone. Stories gone. Completely gone. gone. Uh, the Huns were a nomadic or were nomadic warriors who, of course, terrorized much of Europe and the Roman Empire, uh, particularly in the fourth and fifth centuries AD. They are well known horsemen and best known for astounding military achievements, especially in the form of quick. Th- the description that I heard was quick bow tactics, meaning. That in battles, they would typically form a huge wedge of riders charge or make it look like they're charging into an opponent's center. And the entire time just be slinging arrows at their enemies. And right when they're about to hit the line, they would split off to the left and the right and then continue to shoot arrows down the flanks. And to European armies and the Roman armies at the time, this kind of just threw them completely off because they were not used to this hard-hitting, fast combat. Like, the Roman Empire was extremely known for their infantry uh, and their infantry tactics. So going up against this kind of enemy really threw them for a loop. Yeah, they were not ready for, like, that shock and awe kind of tactic. And And, no. <laughs> and the Huns were smart about that. Like, not yes. only did they split their line like that, but they would have a barrage of aerial volleys mm-hmm. and then, at, like immediately after they shot those once the soldiers had to put their shields in the air mm-hmm. then the guys on the ground would come in with their arrows and shoot straight into the line right. so they're making them try and defend two separate positions mm-hmm. so it, they had really good tactics there's a classic quote from the movie 300 which goes we will make the sky black with arrows yeah and this is literally what they did. Yeah, and they this, were very good at it. They were very good and could hit. Typically, their bows were good for 80 yards. And from all accounts, they were deadly with these bows and arrows. So, and not just deadly with the bow. Deadly with the bow from horseback. Yes, yeah, while you're moving. Which is insane for this time period. Right, and just a little bit of their culture. So they would start riding, typically at the age of three or four, in some way. Just to get acquainted with the horse, like Huns were even reported to often sleep on their horses. Yeah. So like the bond between man and horse and just the knowledge of how to ride the animal into battle was absolutely essential and ingrained into their culture. One of the quotes that I saw said that 
because the, they were talking about how barbaric the Huns were and said they pretty much ate raw meat, but they called it half raw meat because he said, the reason I call it half raw is because they hold it between their thighs as they ride the horse and then it's somewhat cooks that way and then they eat it. I was like, huh. What? <laughs> Does that even work? But I guess if you're riding a horse for like a while and it's just friction heats that meat up, I guess. But it's yeah. a little bit, a little bit different than what we have today when we go through the drive-through yeah. and there's just a thing of fries on the seat. Or yeah, something right. like that. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's funny. But uh, like we mentioned, no one knows exactly where the Huns came from, but some scholars believe that they originated from the nomad Zhongnu people who entered the historical record in 318 BC and terrorized China during the Qin dynasty and during the later Han dynasty. Yeah, and I, I read something that uh, like more modern scholars might contest that theory, that right. they didn't descend from those. But, I mean, it's pretty much just our best guess yeah. because we don't know. Because right. the, the most recent accounts that we have are from like th- mid 300s AD because that's when the Romans first started hearing about him. Mm-hmm. So until then, we don't really have any records to go off of. Right, yeah. This is kind of a very recurring theme with these, if you recall our Sea Peoples episode, if not, go listen back. Uh, all of their history was written and encounters of the Sea Peoples was written by other people, by their enemies. So... It's a very prevalent theme in history. Just people forget to write things down. Very much. And if they do, sometimes it just gets destroyed. So, Mm -hmm. Other historians believe that the Huns may have originated from Kazakhstan or elsewhere in Asia or the Middle East. Prior to the 4th century AD, the Huns typically traveled in small groups, led led by distinct chieftains, and had no known individual king or leader. They arrived in southeastern Europe around 370 AD and conquered one territory after another for roughly 70 years. Yeah, and this is where I'll kind of get into a lot of like the backstory of Rome at this time. Mm-hmm. So one of the earliest mentions of the Huns in the Roman history was from a group of people known as the Goths, which I've mentioned a couple times. No, it's not just like a bunch of like teenagers wearing black clothing and fishnets and listening just, to emotional music. Oh, ooh, just jamming to My Chemical Romance. Doing like the finger glove stuff underneath an overpass. <laughs> oh my gosh. But uh, these goths were another group of people made up of separate various groups that formed together to form the goths as a whole. Mm-hmm. But two of these groups were known as the... I'm, going to butcher both of these names. Welcome to the club, brother. Uh, the Thervingi and the Grithungi groups. Oh, okay. But the I'm bringing these two up specifically because there's a story that it'll sound like it doesn't really matter to the story of the Huns, but as we get through it, I'll explain how it connects. So the Goths have just an import, as important of a role to play in the story of the Huns as the Romans and the Huns themselves do. Because the Roman Empire at this period in time in the mid to late 300s is going through its own struggles. There's a lot going on between balances of power and all that stuff. And the Goths kind of got right in the middle of everything. And then the Huns also showed up right at the same time. It was really like the perfect storm of things to happen that led the way to Attila 
basically ransacking the entire kingdom. Yeah, it it was set up on a platter. So, uh, the whole empire had pretty much been split in Rome at this point because Constantine had just come through. He relocated one of he pretty much just separated into another capital. Mm-hmm. So he set up another capital in modern day Turkey or and set it up as Constantinople in the east compared to where Rome was in the west, obviously. So now you had these two separate capitals that would eventually split into two separate kingdoms, the Eastern and Western Roman empires. And this also was a huge change because he flipped what the major religion was. He brought in Christianity and made it the mod- like the popular religion of the Roman Empire. Which, wild, 300 years ago, before this, Nero was burning them at dinner parties. Yeah, so this was a huge flip in philosophy and religious practice. and. Now there's just two capital cities in a single empire, which I don't, it, that just doesn't work. But this huge empire was still technically trying to patrol both of its borders on the eastern, western, I guess northern side too, and southern. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had the, the sea at the bottom to kind of keep it in check. But yeah, in the east, they had this huge border that they had to protect. And now they've got the Goths over there. Now the Huns are showing up too. And then on the West, you've got the Vandals. You've got all of these groups pretty much sitting on the edge of this empire that's now struggling internally. So by the year 376, the Goths officially kind of established themselves as a major thorn in the Roman Empire side and will remain to be one for the next hundred or so years. So with those giant borders, Rome used a lot of natural landscape to try and you instead of setting up walls everywhere just use what's already there and this meant that the borders were pretty fluid they kind of changed and moved as as they needed to defend and redefend and everything and one of the biggest borders that they used was the Danube river which was a northern border it kind of ran through modern day germany and areas like that down through hungary and into some of those middle eastern areas and it was this flowing border where the Goths, those two various tribes of the Goths, arrived at in late 300s and pretty much said, we're getting chased by the Huns. We need to come into the Roman Empire and get away from the Huns. And you're kind of our last hope before we get cornered. Right. And during these attacks, even, like we mentioned, uh, how the Huns were kind of a mix of a whole bunch of people. During these Hunnic attacks, this is when some of like the Alans, the Goths, and Visigoths were more or less forcefully conscripted into the Hunnic infantry. So they started, the Huns meaning, they started to develop like an infantry battalion, like infantry aspects instead of just being strictly horsemen. Right, and this is where all of those different racial backgrounds are. Because you've got Germanic peoples, you've got like modern-day Slovakia, Mm -hmm. Russia, some of the Asian parts of, or some of like the southern Asian parts. So you've got all different types of people getting put into one area. Right, a lot of the like modern day Baltics, if I'm not mistaken, were also a huge part of the Hunnic peoples, forcefully, yep. mind you. But <laughs> so these two groups showed up at the Danube River, asked to get entrance, and the uh, the Thervingi sent word into the Roman Empire to at that time Roman Emperor Valens and said, "Hey, we'll come live here, but we will offer up some of our men to be conscripted into the Roman army." So Valens was like, okay, cool, I can use the manpower, and then I can tax these people, make more money. And 
it is at this point when they get accepted into Rome where everything starts to go wrong. Yep. <laughs> so you would think this is good, but at this point, the Grithungi are getting rejected. They're, they're not letting them in. So they're going down east further on the river to pretty much cross in and be like, okay, well, if you're not going to let us in, we're just going to come in anyways. Yep. And keep in mind, these are like hundreds of thousands of people. Oh, so many people. Yeah. So, I mean, you can only say no so many times before a hundred, like hundreds of thousands of people are just going to yeah, take land. And that's one of the higher estimates, like lower estimates is like tens of thousands of people, which even so right, is right. tons of people that you right. have to immediately let in all at the same time. So I should have mentioned this also comes from Ammianus Marcellinus, the, the historian we mentioned earlier. But so the Thuringi get let in and they're trying to cross the river, which is overflowing at this point because it had flooded and people are just dying, just trying to cross into the Roman Empire. And once they do get across, there's so many people and the Romans didn't allow as many of the food supplies that they had brought to come across, probably just because it'd be too hard to traverse the river with them. And the supplies that Valens had set aside for these refugees are getting restricted by the Roman generals that are in charge here, and they're inflating the prices, saying, you got to pay us a ton of money to get this food. Yep. So it's even said at this point that, like, these Roman generals are doing such a bad job, like, intentionally doing such a bad job of distributing this food that some of the chieftains for the Goths were having to sell their sons into slavery to pay for dog meat, which, that's not good meat. Romans were not nice to the Goths and to anyone that they considered barbarians. Yeah. Um, they viewed them as kind of disgusting savages and did not treat them well. No, and 400 years before this, when Julius Caesar was in charge, he had the same viewpoint, and they pretty yeah. much... Uh, it, it was pretty much considered a holocaust of the Celtic people. So yeah. th this has been a long-standing stigma in the Roman Empire. Just these non-civilized people or the people that fight like these, the Huns do. Right. It's just not uh, an organized type of fighting. Mm -hmm. But at this time, the Roman protocol was for immigrant groups, they would split them up into smaller groups, send them to separate areas that needed to be populated take their weapons, and that way it would be easier for them to assimilate into the culture and also easier for the Roman people to defend if these groups got organized to rebel, pretty much. So not you don't have a huge group. But since this was such a big group, the Romans didn't follow those procedures, and with the poor treatment that these Thervingi people were getting and the other half of the group getting rejected, everyone pretty much got sour real quick. And... So one of the leaders, or two of the leaders actually got invited to dinner to try and like, quote unquote, quell this rebellion that's starting to rise up. And everyone's like, oh, okay, this will be good. They'll meet with our leaders. We'll calm the tension. And we'll have a glass of wine, just talk our feelings through. And the Romans immediately took them hostage. Oh. <laughs> so right after this happens, all of the Thuringi people are starting to cause riots and one of these leaders that got taken hostage named uh Fritigern was like let me out I'll go talk to them calm them down we can work this out after that they're like okay we'll let you go talk to them and then you can come back 
And so he leaves. And he's like, Pinky swear you won't start a riot. And right he's now. like, peace. <laughs> so he goes, organizes all of the Thurvingi people with the Gruthungi people. And they organize a giant fighting force and start a six-year-long war. <laughs> they really fumbled that one, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> the Romans really fumbled that one. They were one. not the smartest people. <laughs> no, they uh, definitely dropped the bag Yeah, that one. So six years of war, uh, it results in the death of Emperor Valens, the guy that let these people into the country originally at a battle called Adrianople. And he was succeeded by a man named Theodosius I, who eventually came to terms with the Goths, let them settle in the territory. And he's kind of the reason why this story is important to the Huns, Mm -hmm. because this story sets up a big power struggle in Rome between the East and the West. So once Theodosius I takes over, he focuses on using these Goths to bolster their military forces. and they kind of help him manage the border as well as he's got his eye set on the Western Empire, who's also just having their own internal struggles and they're fighting the Germanic peoples and stuff. So he's like, well, while they're struggling, I'm going to organize my forces. So he organizes a big, a big group of fighting, a fighting group with these Goths, his own men, whoever he can conscript, conscript pretty much to go invade the Western Roman Empire from the Eastern Empire. So a civil war between the two breaks out. Theodosius eventually is victorious and becomes the last Roman Empire to rule a unifying Roman Empire. But, as is the case with all good rulers, he got sick and died Like within a year of this happening. Just the classic Roman emperor way to go. Yep. I got my tummy got really sick and then I died. So you wouldn't really think, oh, this is too bad. He's got people to carry on his legacy. But both of the people that he assigns the parts of the Roman Empire to are both of his young sons. Mm-hmm. So immediately it's already splitting the empire up again. And not only is he splitting it up, but he's giving it to two young people who can't rule on their own. So now he's got other people with other different agendas helping advise his sons who are now in charge of the West and East. And both of these Roman empires are trying to see which one of us is going to survive. One of us is probably going to do better than the other at this point because of how things have been going. (laughs) So now you've got warring powers on both sides with inexperienced leaders and when this happens it's just a mess and this is where the huns officially become part of the eastern roman empire because the the kid that's in charge over there says we just could use the people to help defend our borders stuff like that and so this is why all of this is important to attila because by the time he comes around, the Huns are established in the Roman Empire already. And while the Huns are establishing themselves, we finally get a mention of their first recorded king, who is a man named Olden. So this is officially known as the Olden Times. All right. That, 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 was, that was good. Had Honestly, to get, had to that get, was good. That had was to get good. that one in there. Had to, <laughs> that was good. So. Nice. The Goths at this point are moving west into the Western Empire, and they're fighting the king now to get their own settlement there. So the Goths are consistently breaking up the Roman Empire's flow of 
trying to expand pretty much and trying to manage everything. So the Goths are in, in, in the way over there. The East is trying to figure itself out. And then eventually both of these child kings die and their son... From sickness, maybe? (laughs) I guess. The one in the West has nobody to take over for him. So another power struggle ensues. There's one woman who wants to set her son up. I can't remember her name. But another man who becomes known as John the Usurper, he tries to take over, doesn't win, and ends up dying. But he's not really... He's he's only important because of the man who supported him, mm-hmm. whose name was Flavius Adius. Strong name. And he's important because he actually goes to live with the Huns. Mm-hmm. And he actually trains with Attila. Mm-hmm. And that's going to become important for Attila's later conquests and also going to become important later when he fights against Flavius. Yeah, that definitely comes full circle. A hundred percent. Which is extremely interesting, uh, just the fact that it worked out that way. Yeah. But, um, oh, do you have any? Uh, so, and then in the East, uh, after the child dies in the East, whose name was Arcadia, or Arcadius, he gets taken over by his son, whose name is Theodosius II. And so Theodosius II is the one that's going to have all of the interaction with Attila pretty much during his lifetime. And that's where Attila the Hun really comes into play as as a character of history. So I know that was a lot. <laughs> and it, like I said, it doesn't sound like it's really associated, but all of that pretty much sets up Rome to mm-hmm. be a, like, a, a choice pick for Attila. Right. You need to lay that groundwork to have people understand because Rome throughout history is just known as the most stable kingdom of all time the strongest kingdom and empire of all time but this is towards the end of it when things are just not going great yeah and literally everything you just said laid out why it was so i don't want to say easy i guess but made life a lot easier for the huns and attila specifically there was a lot of playground fighting going on between east and west Roman empires and then attila was born it he was a great general don't get me wrong Mm -hmm. but History just kind of set itself up to give him a prime opportunity to be a very ambitious general. Absolutely. <laughs> and ambitious he was. <laughs> very much so. So while all that was happening, uh, the Huns were starting to invade Roman domains, mostly just you know sacking villages, getting tributes, getting coin however they could, and started developing that reputation of that, or excuse me, they started developing the reputation that they were devils arrived straight from hell, which pretty metal. Yeah. Also not great because, again, raping, pillaging, and murdering. ACDC starts playing in the background. <laughs> but it's kind of like a little sad. Highway to hell. Uh, by 430 AD, uh, like Jacob mentioned, there was the first mention of King Olden. But by 430 AD, they united even more, got more organized, and were ruled by King Rugula, as well as his brother, Akter. And barely just know his, her. No, no, his, <laughs> his name just sounds like Arugula. Arugula, <laughs> yes. It's just funny. Oh, what a silly goose. Uh, and he's got, he's got like three different names, though, because history's got like yes. four different things that they call him. So. Yes, that is a fair point. So what I saw was the two was Rugula and Ruga, 
as well as Ruga spelled R-U-G-I-A, so maybe a Rugia. <laughs> yeah, and there's just Rua, R-U-A. So right. That's that's the thing is like since they didn't write any of their own mm-hmm. stuff down, it was just a lot of either trying to translate from hearing it or just making it up, I guess. Right. So who knows if yeah. that was actually his name. But uh, By 432, uh, so two years after, uh, King Rugula and Akter came into power. Octor was killed in battle, and Rugula ruled alone. And during Rugula's reign, this is when he actually formed a treaty with Roman Emperor Theodosius, in which the Huns received a tribute in exchange for their army's help in defeating the Goths, like Jacob mentioned. In the 5th century, the Huns changed from a group of nomadic warrior tribes to now a more settled civilization living in the great Hungarian plain in Eastern Europe. They had amassed an enormous army made up of cavalry and infantry troops, like you mentioned, from a lot of different backgrounds. And now, you know how the Romans, uh, how I mentioned that the Romans were starting to call the Huns uh, devils straight from hell? Uh, They started coining this more towards Rugla's rule, but uh, they hadn't seen anything yet. Yeah. (laughs) The next guy is going to be literally the scourge of God. Right. Wait till you meet his nephew. He's yeah. great with uh, no one. <laughs> so introducing the man of the hour, Attila the Hun. Yeah, 40 minutes, 42 minutes in, and we're just getting to Attila. This is most likely going to be two episodes. Yeah, I think this is a two-parter. <laughs> so Attila the Hun is by far the most famous of these Hunnic leaders. Uh, it's unclear what the exact birth date was, but it is known that he was born around 406 AD. Attila has several translations, such as Little Father and Little Wolf, but one linguist argued that it could even mean Universal Ruler. So, a little bit different than Little Wolf. Setting him up for greatness. Right. <laughs> little Father is so funny. Little, just a little dad. Yeah, just a little guy, but he's a good dad. For all he wears the best khakis. Just based on how he gets buried, he was the best dad. His people truly loved him. Outside of being called the scourge of God by his enemies, the Huns loved Attila. everyone respected him, though. Literally everyone did. Because they knew he was good. They just knew he was scary. He's, again, scourge of God. Uh, Attila was born in modern-day Hungary. Uh, His father, Munzuk, was the brother of the two kings, Akhtar and Rugila. Uh, who, who together, like we mentioned, were in charge of the Huns? I noticed that you didn't mention his mother's name, which is hilarious. Oh, I never caught the mother's name. It's actually like considered to be a recent fabrication. No one really knows what her name was. Oh, jeez. But if I'm if I say this just strictly on how it's it's spelled in this article, it is Hungi Sung Vladdy Surf. Which is just that's a name right there. Hunging on my nerve. I'm I am a hundred percent sure that I did not pronounce that how it's supposed to be pronounced, but that's strictly how it's spelled. That's incredible. (laughs) It is yeah. What a name. Oh hello, I'm Hungi Song Vladdy Sir. And now they're (laughs) Swedish. (laughs) Sure. Again, like we mentioned, a lot of linguistic backgrounds. Nobody knows. Yeah. Attila's childhood was as you could probably imagine, very chaotic and very violent. 
The Huns were constantly at war with different groups, uh, ranging from the Goths to the Gauls in Germany, as well as raiding Roman lands. However, uh, in his early life, especially when the Romans and the Huns started trading and becoming more part of each other's economies through trade, the violence did go down during Attila's earlier life. And it is big to say, too, that the Huns were technically a part of the Roman Empire, the Eastern yes. Roman Empire at this point. Mm-hmm. So they're living in the European Empire. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like they're considered enemies of the Empire, it's just that they kind of did what they wanted. So <laughs> it kind of came to odds with, with the Empire at some points. Right. Like they're just, imagine a very... Imagine a child that really talks back to their dad is what I'm trying to... Well, and the Huns weren't a farming people. So they nope. when they needed something, they just went and took it. Right. So that was their strategy throughout their history, which it's not going to be a very like prosperous way to make friends. No, they, they did not like to get in the dirt. However, after the death of Rugula, uh, one of the aforementioned kings... The power was actually passed to Munzuk's sons, Attila and his brother Bleda. Which Bleda is just a, again a strong name. We don't know a ton about him. Yeah, but he just very kinda, strong. He fades into the background very much when Attila right. takes over too. So because uh, I tried to find some stuff about him, and everything is just referenced articles to Attila. So yeah, there's there's not a lot said about little or big he's big brother blada too right he's not yeah. he's the older one so <laughs> uh after this transfer of power however several of the hunnic nobles uh, who disagreed with the way that the crown uh was passed to these two boys uh went and took refuge deeper inside the roman empire uh, after the brothers bargained with emperor theodosius ii the nobles returned, and things remained quiet between the two empires after the signing of the Treaty of Margus. And this story is also interesting, because the whole thing was, they pretty, uh, actually, I'll wait, and I'll save this, because this is going to come in when they, they don't really keep the treaty. <laughs> they were like, we'll sign this, but their fingers were crossed behind their yeah. backs. So, in 441, so just a few short years later, the Huns once again invaded the Eastern Roman Empire, and this invasion was particularly cruel. They sacked multiple cities, stole everything, enslaved thousands of people, and actually came within 20 miles of Constantinople, which, like Jacob mentioned, was the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire at the time. Or, excuse me, the capital of the Roman Empire at the time. So... This I guess I didn't have to wait that long to get into this, but yeah, so this is where they break the Treaty of Margus very quickly. Yeah. So the whole treaty was basically like, they the Eastern Roman Empire paid more pretty much per year uh, gold, uh, pounds of gold to the Huns to keep them sated so that they didn't come and invade. Mm. And the Huns found one small little opportunity to be like, we're going to just come invade because you did something wrong so the whole story was attila and blada come to who the roman emperor was at the time which is theodosius and say we found desecrated graves of some of our hun people and we think it was one of the roman bishops that did it and there was no evidence of this i mean they just 
they showed them graves. There was no way of knowing who the graves belonged to, who ransacked them, whether it was actually ransacked recently or if this had just been something that they set up. And it is now said that it was probably was this Roman bishop who sacked these graves to try and steal stuff. So it probably was warranted. But either way, the Huns definitely took this opportunity to say, you're going to give us back the refugees that came and hid in your lands because they're Hun people and they're supposed to be with us. Mm -hmm. And also we want to punish that Roman bishop. And they said, okay, we'll give you the refugees back and we'll give you more money. And that was their, how they tried to get rid of the Huns, which they did give them more money and they did give most of the refugees back, but not all of them. And so when they didn't give all of them back, then Attila pretty much made the decision to go invade. And that was their small little thing that they found <laughs> that they could use to invade. At this point, they were really just looking for reasons to invade. Yeah, they, they took any chance they could get. Right. They were definitely seeking out reasons to fight. And I guess, in a bad way to say it, to their credit, they forced the Roman emperor to agree to pay them 2,100 pounds of gold a year. Even more money. Because originally, when Rugula was an emperor, he, it was 350. Then it doubled to 700 after the Treaty of Margus. Now it's tripled on top of that to 2,100 pounds of gold. So the Huns are pretty much saying, we don't want to farm. We don't want to do any type of like merchant trading. We just want you to give us money for being here. <laughs> It's truly bonkers. 2,100 pounds of gold. And that's annually, but still. That is so, so much, much gold. gold. <laughs> like, I'm looking up right now the price of gold today per kilogram is six, roughly 62,000 United States dollars. So, 2,100 pounds of gold. Let's just do some quick math on our phone here. Of gold. Now back to gems of math. Uh, 2,100 pounds of gold right now is worth $49 million. Bonkers. <laughs> yeah. so, so they were getting the modern equivalent of $50 million a year yeah, just given to them. Just handed to them. I'm not even sure how we would even try to adjust. I mean, you can't even adjust that for inflation. It's completely different monetary systems. To summarize... It's a lot of it's a lot of money, <laughs> an insane amount of money. Um, in the meantime, however, Huns continued to attack the Byzantine Empire and areas in Africa to extend their uh, boundaries. So while they're getting the bag from one emperor, they're conquering and going after these. Uh, I believe it was the Sassanid Empire, the who. Uh, are the ancestors, excuse me, the uh, descendants of the Persian Empire. Empire, um, So they didn't stop despite getting the bag from one side of the world. They just continued on the and other side. And it's so funny, too, because the Eastern Roman Empire had just finally made terms with the Persian Empire. Yeah. So now the Huns come in and they're like, we don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a whole lot of your problem. Yeah. Bleda died shortly after the Huns' withdrawal from Byzantium in 445 AD. And, as is always, it isn't clear exactly how Bleda died. 
Most historians believed he was murdered either directly or indirectly by Attila. And after that, the passing of power of this huge empire, huge wealthy empire, as we mentioned, went directly to Attila. And I tried to find more information on Blada's death just to see if there was a more prevailing theory than others. But pretty much everything that I saw said that he was either A, someone was sending assassins to him, most likely Attila, to kill him. Attila killed him personally. Uh... Or he died pretty much in a some sort of battle, like some sort of campaign out somewhere. Mm-hmm. Or he just died of natural causes. So it's literally anything could have happened because no one knows. <laughs> That's just the classic. You, I think you just mentioned every single possible way that a person could die. Yeah, and I think the most re- like reliable source that we have from around this time period came from around 100 years later. Yeah. And I can't remember who the name of the man is that said it. But uh, I think it, it might have been Jordan, Jordanus. Uh, he said that it was most likely that he, Attila had him killed. So that's the prevailing theory. But there was, I really couldn't find any reason why he would have had him killed. So who knows? But he died. He gone. He gone. Blade of blood. <laughs> but nice. Or he could have just got sick. His tummy got ill. Oh, and yeah, then, I don't feel good anymore. I don't feel so good. I can't, I can't even wide my horse. <laughs> We're talking about one of the most deadly men in history. <laughs> Apparently, he was the diplomatic one, which it doesn't seem like he did too much if it was diplomatic. We're, so we're just calling anyone a, a diplomat at this point in history, aren't we? He was just in the back like, I, I don't think we should. Attila, no. Uh, oh, he's already, he killed everyone. Yeah, uh, and Attila chopped off the guy's head. And well, the village is gone. Right. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, Attila's just like, what do you think it should, we should do with this village? Burn it and wipe it from existence? And Blade is Okay, like, bye. <laughs> and Blade has said nothing. Yeah. Once again, however, as is a recurring theme, uh, peace with the Romans did not last. And in 447, so keep in mind, this is six years. No, excuse me. This is two years. Wait, no, I am way off. No, it is six years. Apologies. Uh, After the signing of the Treaty of Margus, uh, Attila launched the greatest war on the Eastern Roman Empire. Nice. He's a fast-moving guy. It helps being on a horse. You just move fast. I think that might be a good spot to stop. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Pick up here, huh? Oh, well, I mean, we are at wait, an hour. <laughs> wait, we want, we want to leave him hanging on the biggest war of the Roman Empire. <laughs> Should I say that again and use that as like, Yes, do it again. Yeah. All right, give, it, give him a dramatic read so we can lead it out. Perfect. So. Peace with the Romans did not last, however. And six years later, in 447 AD, Attila would launch his greatest war on the Eastern Roman Empire. That is something. If you can find some drums, that'd be sick. If that turns out cool, I'm keeping it in. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, that I think we we've laid the groundwork for Attila to really take his his legacy to the next level. Yeah, you can see that we're gonna in episode two talk about quite a bit of bloodshed, quite a bit of uh, Hunnic hijinks, if and you will. some marriage. 
some marriage, a lot of drama. So if you're into, you know, just learning about the different T of historical figures, oh, yeah. stay tuned. We got war. We got marriage. We got death. We got cool coffins. <laughs> I don't oh, know. the coolest coffin, literally, actually. Literally the coolest burial I've ever heard of in the entire history of the world. In this year or so of doing these these podcasts, definitely oh, the yeah. coolest. I mean, if you can get buried and not let people know where you're buried for almost 2,000 years mm-hmm. with modern technology, we still have no idea. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. Take that Egyptians, but you just <laughs> build these stupid little pyramids. Oh, you make... want to keep your body intact? Oh, well, he had three coffins. So yeah. Yeah. Face. Yeah. Face. <laughs> <laughs> But anyways, yeah, that wraps up our first part. Evan, tell the people where they can find us. I made a bunch of memes for these episodes, too, oh, so you can see those on our social media. Truly beautiful memes. <laughs> if you want to see these memes and let them become your dreams, you can find us on our social medias. First, out, first off, at Twitter, at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco, and then myself at whatevskis. You can then find us on Instagram, at gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcast. Then you can find us on TikTok at gems of history pod. Yeah. And go rate and review iTunes, Spotify. Give us five stars. That helps us out a lot. Also, if anyone out there, small business owners, anything mm-hmm. like that, if you guys want to sponsor us, that'd be cool. Yeah. I mean, we're looking for sponsorship. So, I mean, that would help us out. We can help give you guys some, some reps on the airwaves. So, I mean, Listen very closely. I will sell out immediately. Oh, yeah. We are not very, like, it's not hard to bribe us. Right. So. It's like, oh, we'll give you a free platter of wings if you say our name. Done. Dude, we will, we will do anything for a sponsorship. <laughs> I love our, our also, superlatives that we're using. Also, on this. we will do anything. Evan will do anything to get in this Just Batman tunnel. tunnel. <laughs> All right, guys, we will be back next week with part two of Attila the Hun. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know it was a lot to take in. There's a lot of names thrown around, but we will be back next week focusing mainly on Attila the Hun and giving you guys all of the deets on his hardcore takeover of the Eastern Roman Empire. So we will talk to you then.